0: And welcome to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. And today we've got Chris Diamond wait, hold on. We've been practicing this. Diamond You got Did I it. Nail it. You got it. You nailed it. All right. Nailed it. All right. The third time. The third time. You got it, man. Sounds great. Chris, that's a hey, it's a very interesting name. So is Sorelli, which is actually mispronounced. Most people don't get that. It's actually pronounced Sarai. Oh, there you go. Sarai. And everyone thinks we're Italian. Mm. Yeah. There you go. And everyone thinks we're Italian. We're not. I got to say, when I saw your picture, which I know who you are and I've seen you in so many films, I'm like, this guy could pass as one of my Italian. (laughs) Yeah, Greek. (laughs) That's that's close enough. Close enough. So, you know, interesting. uh, You're of Greek origin. You you're actually fluent. Yeah, it's my first
1: language. My mother and father are both from Greece. I was I was uh, born in Toronto, but I spent uh, much of my life living in Greece, like probably six months a year until I was about eighteen.
0: You're kidding me. So is that every summer you do? Yeah, back? we would go back. Well, my, my I know dad six months is a, longer. He
1: had a, a Greek radio station that had a syndicate in Toronto and, and we would go back and see family.
0: And it was, uh, it was a great, great way to grow up, man. Dude. Beautiful, beautiful country. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm jealous. Um, we're actually trying to get our Italian citizenship right oh. now for the entire family. Oh, wonderful. Um, so we'll see, we'll see. But, uh, what, what brought your parents to, uh, Toronto? I mean, look. There was the There was there was a, a
1: lot of social and political unrest in 1970. You know, there was a, a, a there was a junta, a military coup happening in, in Greece at the time. Athens was it was uh, it was kind of a powder keg. Um, and uh, my father uh, wanted. I mean, my father had a he has a, a tremendous history. You know, uh, uh, severe poverty and lost his mother when he was two and worked and put himself through you know night school starting from when he was six years old working in a cafe and in the you know filthy shipyards of Birea in, in Athens and 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 managed to graduate high school and wanted to, to get himself a better life and and so he he had a, a distant uncle that was in Toronto and he um, saved up enough money to to get himself to Toronto he applied to York University which is a terrific university uh, he got in with and he graduated with honors with a with a uh, uh, master's in in business um he flew my mother in uh they had my brother i was born and 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 the rest is history
0: so you so your dad had met your mom yeah in Greece, they met in Greece and yeah, then they met
1: continued in, along yeah they had a long distance relationship and i think he actually i i think the story goes that he sent her a letter and an airline ticket saying uh come come." come find me here. And she did. She was a kid. She was 18.
0: That's, an, you know, most people can't empathize or sympathize with such a bold move like that to leave your your home nation and go to a completely foreign land. Um, I've just, I've never done anything like that. I can only imagine the amount of, uh, I guess, excitement and fear sort of mixed into, uh, into one. It's tremendous,
1: man. I remember I have
0: visceral memories of us
1: Going to K- Kentucky Fried Chicken and my mom and dad saying, "Don't throw away the forks and the knives, the plastic ones, because we're going to wash those. We'll bring them home and we we'll use those for years."
0: So to to say, you know, financially, you guys weren't completely well off when, when you know, no. as you and your brother came up. No, we weren't. No. we weren't. Listen, my father
1: worked hard and he did a great job. There were some yeah. years where he made six thousand dollars, and there were some years where he made you know, $66,000, right? He, he was in a precarious line of work and we never knew what it, what, what what was what was going to happen. We were certainly never for want of anything though. I had a great childhood growing up. You know, I, I never, I don't remember thinking, oh gosh, we don't have this or we don't have that. Never at all. And I will say that one of their big priorities was, I don't care what we're going to do, but we're going to save our money and we're going to take the kids to Greece. And so we grew up learning the language and we went to Greece and, uh, Yeah. No,
0: they did. They did a great job. My
1: folks did a a really
0: great job raising us. That's, that's, uh, that's amazing stuff, uh, is not important. Basically being surrounded by your, your family is, and I couldn't agree more. Um, so you said your dad was in radio. Yeah. My father, it's funny, man. The apple doesn't fall far
1: from the tree. My father has the most mellifluous voice.
0: Um, he was in
1: broadcasting for years. He, he advertised for small local Greek businesses, uh, on the Danforth in Toronto, um, he interviewed uh, uh, various politicians and dignitaries that would come into town. He was kind of the, the mayor of Greektown in Toronto and beautiful voice, a great broadcasting voice, a great presence. And I think deep down inside, he always wanted to be an actor. So despite the fact that typically, uh, you know, Greek immigrants hearing that their eight year old or nine year old wants to be an actor, typically they'd be like, no, 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 no. You're gonna be a doctor, you're gonna be an accountant, you know, you're gonna be in finance when my dad heard it, I think that something sort of ignited in his heart and he was like, okay. And then my mom was like, all right, let's make it happen. And, uh, and to their credit, they, you know, my parents don't know the first thing about being show parents, but I have been acting professionally for 38 years because of them.
0: No kidding. So where did they enroll you in a, uh, no, I'll tell you,
1: I'll tell you what happened. I would, we'd go to Greece, right. And we would, um, we had this little one room flat that we would stay in that was close to the water and we didn't have a TV. And, uh, my mom and my dad or my brother would say, okay, Chris, do some three stooges for us. And I would act out a three stooges episode. And that would be our entertainment after dinner. Um, or do, 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 uh, the court gesture, do Danny Kay, or, you know, whatever it was. Right. And so I had a real knack for it, a real knack for doing voices and switching characters. And when we got back to Toronto, that fall. Uh, I was—I hadn't turned nine yet. Um, my mother's friend mentioned, oh, you know, I'm taking my son Peter to this acting class on every Saturday. I know Chris is really like, he likes doing voices and stuff. You should check it out. And so it was like a classified ad. It was one of those things where it's like they, they're they stealing money from the parents, right? You, you pay them 900 bucks for nine weeks of acting lessons and then at the end agents will come and maybe your kid will be picked to do commercials or whatever the hell it was uh it just so happened that i I loved it i did great i had a ball my mom took me i remember we go on the subway downtown toronto she was always nervous we did it every saturday and then that last saturday there was the big thing and the agents came and i got an agent and i started doing commercials
0: in in toronto it was really neat no kidding at nine years old yeah
1: nine years old man i i I didn't have a clue about anything, but I knew that it felt great every time I walked into a room and there was a camera there and they were waiting for me to do something. And, you know, for better or worse, um, that's pretty much all I've ever done in my whole life.
0: That's uh, – and I know you, you mentioned the uh, the Three Stooges because mm-hmm. I know you actually ended up in a Three Stooges film. So that must have been just serendipity uh, defined for I me. I mean,
1: when I was – I had posters of the Stooges on my wall, you know, when I was 12 years old in sixth grade in Canada, it was a rite of passage for every sixth grader to do a speech. I don't know if that happened in the States, but you had to do a speech. That was the big project that year. You pick something like kids would pick dinosaurs or the Everglades or, you know, whatever it is, you know, uh, the solar system. I, I picked Mo Howard. And at the time, you know, there was no internet. And there were very few books written about the Stooges, but I remember going to Toronto's world's biggest bookstore, and there was one book about the Stooges, and it was this yellow book called The Three Stooges Scrapbook, and it had everything that you would ever want to know about the Stooges, and I studied it inside out and backwards, and I delivered my 15-minute speech
0: about Mo. How about that, huh? <sighs> So you, would you say you ever had a fear of getting up in front of uh, people or is that just something that came naturally? No, uh, to I've you? never had
1: a fear about getting, uh, getting up in front of people. I think it's because, you know, my older brother uh, was deathly shy when we were young, four years older. And so any social situation, he would push me forward and he would tell me like I was – he was my, my uh, uh, Cyrano de Bergerac, right? He would whisper in my ear what I would say and push me forward. And then I'd, I'd be the, you know, the one to say whatever he told me to say. And then people would applaud or whatever. And he'd be, okay, no, 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 say this. So my brother, who still is the brains of the operation, uh, I really credit him for el- eliminating any possibility for stage fright with me.
0: That's amazing. Just It sounds like polar opposites, but in, but in a mutually supportive way. That's exactly way. Um, so dude, I, I've got to be honest. I still get excited when we go to the movies and my wife is not a big movie person. So occasionally she'll, she'll treat me and, and surprise me. Last one was uh air uh, two weekends ago when it, when it opened up and I was just in heaven. Can you remember? And I'm sure the big, sc- it was the big screen that grabbed you. It may not have been, but what was the first sort of vivid memory for you where you watched uh, either a play or a movie and you're like, okay, this, this, this is what I want. To well, do. you and I are
1: kindred spirits in that regard. I'm I'm here in Montreal shooting a series right now, and uh, last weekend or the weekend before, I went to see John Wick because I and I needed something to do, and I've been I, I love I, I support Keanu Reeves in any any chance I can because I just I I don't know him, but he seems like such an awesome guy, and I love his movies, and I love the John Wick series, and I tell you, I had not been to a movie in forever. And I went and I got a big popcorn and I sat and I was just in walking into the theater. I get goosebumps and it just reminds me of, well, first of all, how silly everything is, how how futile it is to try and (laughs) maintain any control over anything. It's all you know, it's that it's that beautiful song. Life is just a bowl of cherries. Don't take it serious. Right. And and when I walk into the movies, it's that it's just a bowl of cherries. Sit down, have some popcorn and let it just wash over you. And I'll tell you, that experience has stayed with me from, you know, I can't remember the first movie I ever saw, but I have a visceral memory of my father inappropriately taking me to see Amadeus in the movie theater and I, I was mesmerized, blown away, and it wasn't uh, Tom Hulse, whose performance I loved, by the way. It was it was F. Murray Abraham. I was I was terrified by him, and I was drawn in in a way that I I couldn't explain. I just knew that. I couldn't look away, I didn't want to leave. It, and it's the kind of thing where even still now, after a movie's done, I look down and I'm covered in popcorn because I can't look down into the container. I'm just <laughs> trying to get it into my mouth. But but I, I'll say, so Amadeus was a big one. There's another big one. When we were in Greece, yeah. there was an outdoor cinema that was uh, next to the place that we were staying in. And sometimes we couldn't afford tickets to go in. So uh, my brother and I, so the cinema would, would uh, uh, happened when the, light, when the light went down, when the sun went down. My brother and I would climb up onto the stone wall and sit up on the wall and duck our heads under the, the tree branches and watch the movie from the wall. And the movie that I remember watching when I was, oh gosh, I must have been eight years old, was Danny Kay's The Court Jester, 1955, Metro Mayor Goldwyn. If you haven't seen it and you've got children, that is a Saturday afternoon movie. It's perfect. Basil Rathbone as the villain, Angela Lansbury as the damsel in distress. It's exquisite. It's a musical. It's got Danny Kaye doing his very best patter song, tongue twisters and some of the best comedy you've ever seen, beautiful visuals. But I remember that feeling, watching that movie thinking that's, I don't know if that's a job or what that is, but that is what I want to do and see and experience for the rest of my life. That's what I want to do. That's it.
0: You you get this excitement when you talk about the experience and, and I know everyone's like, Hey, you know, movie theaters are on the decline. You can stream things to your home, which is convenient. It's expedient. I yep. get it. But there is something about the cinema experience where you've got your kids and you're like three big tubs of popcorn, yeah. butter, Cokes. And it, it's the entire, the entire experience, man. And, you know, for me, I'll say it for what it is. Hollywood is the greatest recruiting tool for the U.S. military. It just is. Wow. You watch those and it just – you dreamed and you're like, I've got to see if I have what it takes. I've got to experience that. And then you get there and you're like, okay, nope, I was wrong. <laughs> I don't want to experience this. Send me home. <laughs> um, but additionally, Chris, like it seems like you are an encyclopedia of cinema and in Hollywood. Do you, do you teach it all? Okay. Do you teach uh
1: theater? I, I wouldn't deign to say I'm an encyclopedia of anything other than bullshit, man. I'll say this. Um, I, I'll add to what you said. Um, going there with your kids, having the tubs of popcorn, sitting in there. But really what it is, it's the community. You're sitting with a bunch of strangers. You may not like them. You may not have any of the same ideas about the way life should be run. But at the moment when Cruz puts that into Mach 3, you're high-fiving the guy next to you. It doesn't matter who it is. You're just psyched to be there. And that is the root of storytelling. And that is what we've done since we were cave people. We sit around a fire. And in this instance, our fire is the big screen. Yes, And we tell these stories and they unify us and they frighten us and they warm our hearts. And, you know, I remember the first Play I saw was it was a musical adaptation of The Prince and the Pauper. It was at Young People's Theater in Toronto. And I just couldn't believe that these people, I knew that they were actors on stage, but I was I was so drawn in by what they were doing. I could feel their spit on me. It was such a small theater. I could smell their clothing and their makeup. Like, I don't know, man. I I I think it's important to remember that it's all nonsense but it's also one of the holiest things that we have as a race is the ability to communicate story and make people feel something. And so, you know, do I teach? No. Uh, would I be open to, to talking about my passion? Anytime.
0: So I, I, I'm sure you have no problem when, when people say, hey, this is Chris, the actor do you consider yourself more a, a, a storyteller than an actor? I mean, do, how do you, how do you look at that? Cause I, I, I believe in storytelling. I believe teaching leadership to the younger gen- generation through what we call sea tales or, or analogies is you basically give them a story of here's what to do. I recommend you don't do this and, and so forth. But uh, I mean, when you talk again, it's like you you, you wield this, this sword of, uh, of storytelling
1: that's beautiful that you do that. You know, I read, um, Admiral Stavridis' book. Um, uh, one of them, uh, Sailing True North. Is that is that, is that, is that the title? I believe Yes. Um, and, and I feel like he does, maybe, maybe it's carrying on in the tradition. He does something similar with the way that he draws a, an allusion to the whole uh, nautical and naval world by using these, um, uh, these analogs of these specific people throughout history—it's ab- absolutely beautiful. Um, I, I love the moniker Chris Diamantopoulos, actor. I wear it like a badge of honor. Um, um, but but I, I think storyteller works. I mean, honestly, look, man, I I am a I'm a lucky schmuck. You know, I I grew up loving movies and loving theater, and somehow by the grace of God and just a, a real vein of deep-seated good luck I've gotten to be able to do it my whole life and you know I get emotional talking about it or even thinking about it because there are people out there and you know them that that work for a living man that that put their lives on the line for a living that that do things that matter because if they don't do them we'll die okay and and they are unsung heroes they're not on this podcast you're you're not talking to them you're talking to me and what I do for a living is uh, occasionally, bleach my hair, put costumes on, and makeup. Right? Um, so, look. All, all I'll say is this: I, I don't. I know that you've interviewed a, a great pedigree of people, but of all of them, I'm probably the luckiest one you've ever interviewed.
0: Uh, I, that is the humility coming through. You know, you you talk about your role, and and we've had some some great actors on, like yourself. Everything is intertwined. In the analogy I used for them, or, or the story was. You don't know what it means. I think I said this to Dave Batista. I said, you don't know what it means to us when we're in a combat zone, you're five months into a seven month deployment. And unfortunately we had uh, you you probably heard this term, the Haji copies, which is somebody pirating your your movies uh, from in the thing. And I know that's awful. It's an awful industry, but that's the only way we got movies, but just the excitement to sit down for three hours and pretend you weren't in a combat zone. You weren't going on a mission. And you just get engrossed by whatever movie, you know, you and your, 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 uh, your peers produce. but it was a reprieve for us in a lot of ways. And, and so being grateful for everyone in the role they play is essential. And, and I mean, it's a key to kindness and respect, having respect for even the person that sweeps the floors into the restaurant you, you step into, man. So, um, Hey, we're, we're both very lucky. Um, so at, at one point, what point did you move to, uh, to New York. Well, or at least what I read. I, it sounded like you moved. Yeah. On. Sorry, man. You got me emotional there, man, thinking about those men and women. Sorry. Oh, it's okay, man.
1: These people, what they do, man, what they do.
0: Okay. Well, you no, know, no, hold on. Hold on. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go one further. Uh arrested development. <laughs> uh so no, no, no. This is this is funny. This is this is a tie. So I remember uh we binged on Arrested Development, which you were a part of. And and God, what a great series, dude. What a just, great series. It was just so unique. And so we'd 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 want to binge, and we'd want to watch three episodes in in uh in a row, but we said, hey, no, no, no. We're gonna do one episode, we're gonna go out on this mission, which is a it's a 48-hour sniper overwatch mission. And we'll watch the next episode when we got wow. back. So we just left ourselves a, I, I guess a, uh, a something, to, something look to look forward, forward to. to. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we made it through Arrested Development, uh, the seasons. And, uh, you know, we actually had two episodes left and it was our last mission. We went out and we, 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 a few of us got injured and one guy was lost and we never watched those last two oh, episodes of, uh, of Arrested Development. But, Again, it's funny now that I'm I'm talking to you. I just put two and two wow. together. Wow, man! That 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 was one one deployment and one show we right. watched in uh, love. Amazing, incredible,
1: so, incredible. Um, I'm, small, uh, world. A very small world. Uh, I'm sorry, I I, I think I, I interrupted you. You had you you were you were oh, when did I move to New York? That that's that. Yeah. That's what you um. Okay. So, look, I started doing um like commercials in in Toronto when I was a kid and. Um, I was a pretty cute nine-year-old, pretty cute nine, ten-year-old. I, I was. I, I think I was a pretty cute kid. Um, I was not a cute teenager. Uh, I, 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 puberty hit me with a baseball bat, man. I mean, I just, I tell you, it, it, overnight, I went from cute kid to oh, full, gee, what happened to that guy? And my agent dropped me overnight. I the phone stopped ringing. So it's really interesting. At 13, 14, I experienced my version of Sinatra's, uh, you know, 1955, when he was told, you'll never sing again, Frank. Uh, It was that like, you're done. You're done. No one wants to see you anymore. And I, I have to tell you, I had an existential crisis when I was 14. Because I knew what I wanted to do. I knew. That's all I wanted to do, I had a taste of it. I did lots of these national commercials. I was kind of a local celebrity. I was a little, I was a thing. And and I wasn't, it was gone. And I realized then, uh, uh, maybe not consciously, but obviously looks weren't gonna get me anywhere. And thank God I figured that out because I didn't get any better as I got into my twenties or thirties. Or you know, I'm finally looking like a 48 year old I've looked like I was 48 since I was 14 years old, you know what I mean? So I I realized that there's got to be more to it than that. And and fortunately, because I'm lucky, I think I think that look, God didn't give me much in 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 any other meaningful ways, but for some reason he gave me this ability to speak in a facile manner. Uh, he gave me this ability to recognize where my mimicry could come into play. He gave me this observational ability to see certain things, uh, idiosyncratic behaviors that I might be able to hold on Mm -hmm. to and either um, use to to my advantage uh, or uh, recognize them as a cautionary tale. Um, He gave me a keen observational eye and ear, and he gave me a musical ear, um, a pretty good one, actually. Um, I didn't realize how good until more recently, but but more on that later. Um, and, and and so I very quickly started to go back into the things that inspired me, into those old movie musicals, all the Gene Kelly stuff, Sinatra stuff, Danny mm-hmm. Kay. And I realized, much to my brother's chagrin, because I was in my bedroom singing all this stuff and he would knock on the door, shut up, you know, but I realized that I, I had a good ear. Now I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a great singer yet, but I could really sort of I could sing, and it was that, that actually gave me any kind of confidence to carry on in the entertainment industry because my looks, and I'm not kidding, I really was an ugly teenager. Um, And so what happened was though, I started combing the local papers for any amateur theater productions that were happening, and I auditioned for everything. And it turned out at that time, it was hard to find young men that wanted to sing. It was, you know, it was a, a, there weren't a lot of guys that were doing it. There weren't a lot of guys that were very good at it, at least where I was in Toronto. And so I kind of had my pick of the litter of a lot of these productions where they're like, oh my gosh, you'll do it. You'll stand up on stage and you'll sing and you'll wear, you know, you'll wear tights or whatever the hell it is. Yeah, sure, I'll do it. You know, and I started getting all of this hands-on experience with no consequence. I could fall flat on my face, but it didn't matter. It was, you know, the rinky dink community production of whatever you know what i mean and then i started really getting some confidence and i started doing it in high school and and in one show in particular i remember i i had said to my high school music teacher when i was in 10th grade i said i really want to do man of la mancha that that, that that's the show that that i i want i want to play don quixote and he sort of laughed at me he said you can't we can't do that we can't do that as a high school and you're you're not a good enough singer to do it. It was in 10th grade. I'll, I'll never forget. And uh, and it's, it killed me that he said that. He said, you're a fine singer, but we, we can't do that. And I, uh, I spent the whole next year preparing a one act of that show that I was going to present to him at the end of the year in our music class. We had this big project we were supposed to do. I completely didn't do that. And when it came time for me to do my project, I hired a pianist. And I did a one act of me doing Don Quixote in Man of La Mancha. And I tell you this, it, you know, my humility is going to go out the window right now. I will tell you, that's the best performance I ever gave. And I just, I delivered. And and I'll never forget it. Mr. Graham, God rest his soul, Bill Graham. He, he looked at me from the back of the class and he said, fuck you. Okay, we'll do it. And so the next year we did Man of La Mancha. And Man of La Mancha solidified for me that I'm not an idiot to be wanting to do this for a living. And right off of that, I, did a, I auditioned for and did a professional show uh, called Forever Plaid. I did that in Toronto. And I was supposed to go to the Central School of Speech and Drama in London. I got a scholarship to go <laughs> there after high school was done. But um, it was an odd confluence of, of things happening. My, 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 my father's business had started not going great. And I got a job offer to do a a national tour that was going to pay me a tremendous amount of money for a 17-year-old kid with a per diem. And they'd put me up and they'd give me, you know, money weekly. And I just thought, I know my folks need it. I'm going to do it. So I deferred entry to the school. I I went and I I, I did the the show. And then by the time my year had come to go back to, to now go to London and actually go to school, I had auditioned for Les Miserables on Broadway and they said yes. And I just thought, well, I guess I'm, I'm not meeting any, any British girls anytime soon. I'm moving to New York. And, and I, I moved to New York and, uh, and uh, yeah, that's it.
0: You you mentioned Les Miserables. Let me tell you, uh, my parents had that on (laughs) repeat in their car growing up. I like, Hey, amazing play you see it in action it's just a moving story but to be like 14 listening to Les Miserables on the way from like San Jose to, to Reno you're just going fucking crazy um god bless them they're still with yeah, us man. but whenever they say hey let's take a road trip I'm like no, no, no thanks no. We'll, we'll, I'll fly we'll meet you there um it was that or uh Fan- phantom of the Op- okay I'm yes just, sir I'm not a good yes, singer sir. uh so you know it's funny you use the uh, the Frank Sinatra uh, analogy. And you know what? I never went back and read why he, why he wrote and sang the song, but, uh, there's a song. I still have in my, uh, my iPod. I, you know, I did it my way. And it's almost like the middle finger to, uh, to everyone that says you can't, but that story you just told, I mean, have you relayed that to your kids when somebody said, Hey, you no, know, you can't, you're, you're not going to be good at baseball. You might want to quit kid. Is that, is that the sea tale you tell? You know,
1: it's funny. Um, so my kids are just starting to enter that. My, my my oldest is only 12, right? And then I've got a nine-year-old and yeah. a three-and-a-half-year-old yes. and, a, and a six-month-old. Um, so, you know, fortunately, I haven't necessarily needed to relate a lot of, you know, it's funny. My wife and I talk about this all the time. You know, we don't want to do that thing where, you know, I had to walk, you know, 10 miles in, in, in snow, barefoot to go to school <laughs> and all that sort of thing. I've, I've tried recently. I don't know if it works. Well, you know, we'll find out in about 20 years, right? But I've tried to relate. um I've tried to use their own stories to relate to how they might deal with things because it's funny and I'm going to get emotional again, but my kids teach me more than I teach them by far. Um, They're, they're so, um, they're so unmessed up by this world that their instincts, even when they don't accomplish what they want, or even if they do it wrong, the instinct comes from the right spot. So they're just, they're one, they're one step off of what the right, instinct with the right result would be. And, and yeah, man, they're, they're, they're incredible,
0: incredible kids. That Hey, the younger generation is always the next best generation. They are, they are. It's on, it's on us to one lead by example, yep. observational uh, learning or behavioral modeling and show them the right way to do things. And if this world is messed up, guess what? Look in the mirror. Uh, point those two thumbs back. We've got no one else to, to blame but ourselves. Yeah. But so I read, I, I, I when I read the story, I'm like, okay, like, what are the odds? You're in the subway and you see, how did this go down? You see a beautiful woman. Did you actually have the courage? Because that's a rare trait. Did you go up to her or did you guys just sort of start talking? did And then she turns out to be an actress. Didn't I
1: tell you, Mike, that I was the luckiest guy you've ever interviewed? Yes. Okay. You did. So this is, this is that billion dollar mega billions lottery ticket. Okay. It's March 5th, 2002. And I was doing the full Monty on Broadway at the time. And, um, yeah. I, as a side hustle, I started getting into, um, voiceovers and, uh, on camera commercials to make a little extra money. Cause it's expensive living in Manhattan, even when you're working on Broadway. Um, I was, uh, 25, 26 years old, um, and I'm on my way to a voiceover audition, and I'm uh, underground in Times Square. I'm going from the, the 1 to the, uh, to the ACE line. I'm walking in this weird maze of underground, and it's a sea of people. Now, this is also before the ubiquity of cell phones. Now, people had mobile phones, but there were no smart devices, really. I mean, there were the Palm Pilots, but people weren't walking around like this. You know, and people were walking around like this. And in New York, people were walking around like this and they were all kind of pissed off, which is why when I saw my wife, she was so it was like a unicorn. She it's like she had a spotlight on her. She was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. But what it was was that she was smiling. She was humming to herself and she was walking from, you know, probably 150 feet away and just she was smiling and humming. And I I unabashedly was staring at her. And she walked by. Now look, I probably looked at a hundred girls, uh, you know, a thousand girls on the subway while I was like, are you kidding? You know, but never did any, I'd look and wow. And then I'd turn around and get a better look. Wow. Okay. That was nice. Can you know, I set my, set my day? Well, in this instance, I turned around to get a better look and she turned around. Our eyes kind of met and I was like, Oh God. All right. I got to do something now. And so I turned back around and I kept walking and I said to myself out loud, go talk to her. And so I was like, "Okay, I know what I'm going to do. I know what I'm going to do. do. I'm going to do." And I approached her and I tapped her on the shoulder and she turned around and gave me this look like, "This better be good." And uh and I was just nebulized. I had no idea what to say. And I I think the bo- the best I could muster was um "Are you are you lost?" And she said, "No. Are you? Are you not from here?" And I lived at 48th and 8th. I lived like four blocks away. I was like, "No, no. I'm yes, I'm from the general vicinity, but this area, this knuckle kind of always messes me up. Where are you headed? And she said, I'm headed to 72nd Street. I said, you know, I'm going that way, let's walk together. And uh, we walked to the subway together. I wasn't going to 72nd Street, I missed the audition. And uh, we started talking and she's, she was she was 22 years old. She said, I'm, I'm going to a singing lesson. I really wanna be a singer. I said, oh, you're going to a singing lesson, I'm a singer. And she said, are you? And I start singing, Rolodex thinking, I'm like singing lessons, 72nd Street. And I lived in New York for a while that time. I knew all the basic singing teachers. I was like, uh, are you seeing so-and-so? No, 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 no. You're seeing Bruce Cole. Yeah, I'm seeing Bruce Cole. Oh, okay. Well, you can say hi from Chris. He knows me. I did like Miz. No, no, no. And she was like, okay. And we talked a little bit. It's, ama- it, it's amazing. In that first conversation, she basically dissected my entire life. because She's like, so you're a singer. I said, yeah, I'm on Broadway right now. And she was very impressed with that, which I'd never met before because most of the girls I dated were also on Broadway. So they weren't too keen on, you know, me. Um, but she was pretty impressed. And she's, and and I said, yeah, I really want to go to LA. I really want to be in TV and film. And she said, well, then why don't you do that? And I was like, you don't just give up a Broadway show and move to LA. And she said, well, you do if you want to be in TV and film. And I said, I said, you you don't know what you're talking about. She goes, all I know is you're sitting here telling me you're not impressed with being on Broadway and you want to be in movies. So why are you still here? And I'll tell you what, man. Two and a half months later, I gave my notice and and we moved to Los Angeles together. We, me and Becky,
0: after two months. Yep. no kidding. So to say it was a whirlwind romance what, is is an understatement. It was,
1: man. But I, I, I'll tell you what, it was it was crazy because she had more belief in me than I had, and certainly more than the universe was willing to give me evidence that it had in me at the time as well, because I gave up a Broadway career and I, 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 I didn't get work for almost three years. I couldn't even get an agent. Uh, they wouldn't even consider me for a, a non-speaking role. It was, it was like, it's like the, the, the motor of my life and business stopped. And every time I kept saying to her, fuck it, I just wanna go back. Let me, let's just go back to New York. She would say to me, this is what you wanna do. You have to stay. You have to figure out a way to break through. And I would get so angry with her. I was like, you just don't understand. She was like, I do. It's hard, but you've got to do
0: this. You know, it's very cliche to say that behind every strong man is a, is is a stronger woman Um, because Becky in her own right has a a very successful career, but I, I will mimic you, man. I like, I have more doubt in myself than probably anyone, but it's always my wife that says, no, stay the course. It's, it. um, it's, it's, it's less about whether it's a man or a woman. It's about It's partnership.
1: your partnership. It's, it's a, a partnership. The, it's the person. I say this to the young people that ask me, like, if they're dating or whatever, what should I look for? And there's a Greek word, ponos. Ponos means pain, but it means more than pain. It's empathy. It's sympathy. It's love. It's trust. And so your partner has to have ponos for you. They have to. They have to feel that. Your when you fall, they feel it before you hit the ground.
0: That is, I'm going to look that up and read more on yeah. that. Bo, bonos. Bonos. P P O O S. Bonos. Bonos. So, diving into your relationship a little, a uh, little more. How how soon after you guys moved to LA did you get married? And then uh, you said the your oldest is 12. Yeah. So I'm thinking 2011 is when you had, uh, yeah, 2000, 2010, your, your yeah, 2010. Yeah.
1: 2010, 2010, And, um, uh, so we, you know, we started dating instantly. We moved in together in New York and then we moved to LA. It was a fluid thing though. We would go back and forth between New York and LA. I, I gave up on Broadway, but my career in voiceovers and, uh, had really started picking up and that's how I was able to subsidize a lot of this. She started, you know, really starting to get work, uh, as a commercial actress on camera. And then when we got to LA, um, you know, she was 22, 23, but she looked like she was about 17. So she started getting a lot of auditions for, you know, real TV shows and movies. And I would drive her and they would say, your dad has to wait outside. <laughs> I was
0: only touche, sir. To was
1: Crazy. I was only five years older than her, but I, I'm telling you, I looked like I was in my 40s. Da- dad has to wait outside. I was like, dad. Okay, Fine. So anyway, um, we, uh, we got married in uh, 2005 um, and, uh, and it was a beautiful, tiny little wedding. Um, it was funny. We, we got married on a Thursday because that was the day that we could make it happen between potential work and, you know, it, and that's what our life has always been. It's been this like, Becky and I aren't planners, you know, we, we for better or worse, we ascribe to the, um, oh, yeah, there's that great, it's a great lyric from Man of La Mancha. I actually have it on a bronze plaque in my home. And the wild winds of fortune shall carry me onward. Oh, whithersoever they blow, whithersoever they blow, onward to glory I go.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, we're going to have to get Becky on the uh, the cheech, podcast. Cheech. Yeah, side yeah, of yeah. The, uh, Buckle the story. in,
1: man. Buckle in because if, if you're liking let, it, let me let me get
0: started on Chris. <laughs> I, I, so, Chris, I mean, you've I, I have no doubt every great story starts with uh, you know trials and obstacles, and you have overcome those. I mean, the list of TV shows and movies you've been been in. Are massive. I mean, from the hits of uh, you know Silicon Valley, which was I loved your character. He was wild. He was eclectic. He was a bit of an asshole. <laughs> um, but but most recently, I mean, you're part of history uh, alongside uh, you know Dwayne uh, Johnson, Ryan Reynolds, with the uh, the Red Notice. And, and correct me if I'm wrong. You had two films come out that month on uh, on Netflix, wasn't it? Yeah, there was there was
1: Red Notice, and then there was the miniseries True Story with uh, Kevin Hart and Wesley Snipes.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. In Red, is Red Notice still the top? Was it the top top-grossing film? film of Netflix so, of all time? Yeah, I, I believe it still holds that title.
1: Uh, and, and and I'll say, if it is so, it's not surprising to me because I think Dwayne Johnson can can power a planet with his charisma, uh, and and you you should know this, uh, he is an absolute sweetheart of a human being and such a delight to be on set with and such a positive and affirming leader. And I learned a lot sitting back and taking the old stoic standpoint of, God gave us two ears and one mouth, let's use them in the right proportion. And I sat back and I listened and I watched, uh, that, that gentleman at work.
0: That though, that, that is a cast of characters yourself included. I am sure the antics were, uh, were, were not, you're not going to get, you guys are focused on on the production. You
1: won't get funnier than Ryan Reynolds. Are you kidding? The guy's like, he's like, uh, he's like Cary Grant meets Bugs Bunny. He's handsome and charismatic and talented and the funniest whip-smart mind I've ever worked with. And then you've got Gal Gadot, who is unbelievably funny and witty in her own right, and, and possibly, you know, the face to launch a thousand ships. You know, she's absolutely yes. stunning and so talented. And uh, no, I was, look, I was very fortunate to be a part of, of that uh, that group of uh, distinguished distinguished individuals.
0: That I, I I can only imagine the experience that was. Yeah. Um but you've got some you've got some great works coming up. You've got uh the sticky, you've got uh Miss Davis. Uh, the sticky's about to go into production. That's it's right. So on. the sticky we're almost right, right? we're almost
1: done filming. Actually, Jamie
0: Lee Curtis arrived in
1: Montreal last night. We had dinner and tomorrow I start working with her. I can't give you I can't give any Easter eggs away. I will say that fans of Jamie Lee Curtis are going to be over joyed with what she's doing in the sticky. It's me and Margot Martindale, another terrific career actor. Um, And that's going to be on Amazon Prime in 2024. And then Mrs. Davis, as you said, that just came out uh, about two weeks ago. Uh, There are five episodes uh, on Peacock right now. And then the last three will stream every Thursday. And that's a tremendous show produced and written by Damon Lindelof, who did Watchmen, Leftovers, Lost, and it's acted uh, brilliantly by the exquisite Betty Gilpin, um, whom you've seen in a million things, but uh, uh, probably most notably on Glow um, uh, on on, uh, Netflix. Uh, And it's a tremendous ride. And I play a character on that like you wouldn't believe. The character's name is J.Q. And if you look too quickly at it, you wouldn't even see me because uh, I don't look like me
0: at all. Interesting. Interesting. That actually brings up a point because I had heard this. Um So for Red Notice, was there a character switch with about a month left? Oh yeah. Where they said they wanted to Yeah. There, there, there it, was. It, it, you you stay in shape. You clearly stay in yeah. shape. I'd be interested to see what your routine is, I'll but tell you, yeah. you basically were told, "Hey, eat whatever you want, get 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 I, not get I fat." I was but supposed get to get soft. fat.
1: I actually was. I was supposed to be We described the character a little bit as like Elmer Fudd. So I was going to, I was going to shave my hair down a little bit to be kind of bald and I was gaining weight. I was eating donuts and pasta and pizza and the character was going to be Greek. I, I made the character Greek and, and and I, and we had this whole backstory and then, yeah, it was about three and a half weeks before production flag on the play. We're not going to do that. There was a, uh, there, there, there was a reason. Ryan had just done a movie where the, the, the bad guy was a Greek guy and he was kind of a dumpy guy and, they just wanted to stay away from it so ross and the director actually said listen we're probably going to go south american and i had said to him originally i don't want to do south american because i'm not south american you should hire a south american actor but if you're open to switching it let's make him greek and we made him greek and then it's like it's not going to be greek i'm going to go south american and then i was like okay i'm all for making sure the right person gets the job but i also want this job i don't want to lose the job and it's like no no no, no. Here, here. he's like no i know you don't want to do south american i was like no no i don't want to do south american and he was like, "Well, what's it going to be?" I was like, I, 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 "This is what it's going to be." He goes, "We can't have him fat." I was like, "Don't worry, that's okay." Here's the deal: this guy is going to be a viper in the best shape of his life. He's an assassin. He's an arms dealer of unknown European origin. And we, he's like, "Well, what does he sound like?" I was like, "Well, his father strangled him when he was a boy, so he crushed his vocal cords, and he's got this really fucked up voice." And yeah. and, and you know, and uh, and 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 I can uh, I can I, I can I can do this for you. And Rostin was like, "What about getting into great shape?" And I was like, "Well." Um, when I get there, you, you, you won't recognize me. And I had three and a half weeks of the most grueling intermittent fasting steak eating and, uh, exercise that I've ever done in my life.
0: So you went carnivore. I went full, I For went full. Keto no, here's carnivore. the thing, man.
1: I, I didn't, I, 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 so I went full on carnivore. I intermittent fasted, you know, roughly you know about 20 22 hours a day, and I just did uh, body weight workouts at home. I was just doing uh, chin ups, push-ups and uh, body weight squats because I did, I, I knew I wasn't going to get big, I couldn't get big, but I knew I could cut down and shred up and so and so that's what I did.
0: Ooh, that must have been grueling. yeah man. it was but it was it was super fun
1: and and my wife liked that body better than the body I was working on
0: Hey. Uh, whoever says, whatever woman says they love dad bots, the, the, Hey, they can lie. They can lie to themselves. You can't <laughs> lie to me, but no, no, that's, and, and you look good on that one. Um, I do have to go to this cause did I hear you, you say that you're working on, uh, the, the boys in the boat? Yeah, man. Oh,
1: geez, Louise.
0: <laughs> is it, is this the, off the, the novel, yes. the 1936, uh, have you read that? No way. So I've not read it, but I know the story I, I, in a lot of People have said you need to so pick So you this really up.
1: do, and I'll tell you what, the next family vacation you go on, if your kids give you a little bit of time to read, this is the book to bring with you. I read it before I knew anything about, about the movie. And it is such a love letter to America. It's a love letter. It's a Norman Rockwellian love letter to what the nation is capable of when they band together, despite the depression, despite everything crumbling in. It's It's a... A microscopic look at this one group of um, uh, not impoverished, but but you know lower income boys in Washington, uh, Washington State, um, who had didn't know the first thing about rowing, that ended up on the crew team because it paid them I think something like some nominal fee of like twelve cents a week or something like that, and and and, and they ended up through sheer will, determination, leadership. And and that intangible quality, they ended up not only you know smoking all of these you know veteran uh, uh, and legacy crew teams from like you know Yale and Harvard and Princeton and whatever, but they they ended up winning Hitler's Olympics, and and they won in in, in in they were you know in in the Olympics that year the row you were in in terms of 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 what what uh, what your row was in in the row made it incredibly either easy or incredibly difficult based on how the tide was was coming in. They, they had everything stacked against them and they won. And, it, and and it's that microscopic view of that team that also paints the picture. And the author does such a brilliant job of painting the picture of how the country also had everything stacked against it, but it made it through. And it, it, it makes me so proud because, um, you know, I, I as I said, I was born in Toronto and I'm very, very proud uh, to be a Canadian, but I also... Um, right before I, I did Stooges, I got my U.S. citizenship, and I'm also very proud uh, to be American. And, and it's stories like this told by filmmakers like George Clooney that, that just fill me with such a pride and such a, a joy. And I'll just tell you this, man. I, when I grow up, I want to be George Clooney. And it's not because it's not because he makes everything look so cool. And it's not because he's badass in every way. And he's got this wonderful wife and this wonderful life and all this money. And it's not, it's none of that. It's because of how he puts the work first. He's a hard worker. And I estimate that George Clooney works now as a multi-gajillionaire super success exactly the way he did when he was struggling to find his way as an actor that nobody knew. He is genial, he's kind, he's prepared, he's well-read, and he's not distracted. He didn't have his phone with him on set, he didn't disappear into a trailer. He was there to make the movie, and making the movie meant being there. He talked to the extras, he talked to the crew, he talked to the actors, he shared stories, he was engaged. From the moment we got to set until the moment we left. And I watched that and I thought, that's the way to lead. That's the way to lead.
0: I think that's the way to lead regardless of profession. And uh, that is, that, that's overwhelming and encouraging to hear. I mean, you brought up Keanu Reeves. And I, I, everyone's heard the stories. The man's humility from what I've read is off the charts and the way he treats people with empathy, kindness, and respect. Hey, there's, there's no other way to go through life. I don't care what you've accomplished, how great you think you are. Just treat people, especially people who can't do anything for you. Like again, the person sweeping the floor, the person behind the counter, grabbing your food, treat those people with the utmost respect. And that tells me a lot about the character of individuals. But I, I, I believe in timing and, and and Chris, as you're talking about the, 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 boys in the boat, uh, I, I own a company called Legacy Expeditions uh, alongside a guy named Andy Stumpf, who was also a retired Navy SEAL, uh, better SEAL than I was, but I won't say that uh, uh, to his face. <laughs> um, but we we recently went and we did seven continents, seven days, seven skydives, and we set four world records. Wow. But we had a group of uh, – uh, but this is where the, 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 the analogy to the boys in the boat, six special operations guys came to us and said, hey, we want to row. In one of those, you know, uh, rowboats, three row at a time, three sleep in the small capsules. Oh, wow. Uh, we want to row Drake's Passage from South America to Antarctica, which is the most treacherous stretch of sea. Something like 20,000 sailors' lives have been lost. 800 boats sank. And Andy and I look, and they're like, hey, do you guys want to join the team? And we're like, F no. We're like, we'll support you guys. We'll help with the fundraising. We'll pull this under the Legacy Expeditions banner. But so they, there's only one crew that has ever done the Drake's Passage, and they did it in 12 days. And they reached out to the team. You know, these guys are humble. Hey, go talk to the people that have done it who have experience. Let's, let's hear what they have to say. And and they were kind, but they basically said, hey, you know, the crew that did it in 12 days are all experienced yeah. uh, oceanic rowers. Yeah. And they're like, what What's your experience base? And all the guys are like, uh, we were special operations. With uh, I've I've got a. Uh, a concept two rower in my house. That's, that's about the extent. And they're like, yeah, guys, this is going to be really tough for you. If you don't maintain this speed, uh, you guys aren't going to do this. And sort of subtly, we're trying to talk them out of it or scare them. But I'm going to tell you, like knowing the caliber of the, of the gentleman, and I'm going to send you the deck. It's interesting. This is going to be so awesome. Wait. Yeah. You're talking 20 foot seas. And I'm going to be on the maritime support vessel with the rescue team. I'm going to be on pins and needles oh watching these guys, but they're not deterred. God. Not deterred. Yeah. That's, I mean, listen, this is why I say I play a man on TV, but those are men. Okay. I'm a reasonable facsimile wow. thereof. Oh my. God. And, and I'm, I'm not those men either. I'm sitting on the, uh, the maritime wow. support vessel with the coffee, but wow. I'm going to get them this book and it just dawned on me. I'm going to send them each of this book and say, Hey, Not only is it relevant. Oh, it's beautiful. It's it's also a it's a
1: love letter to rowing. It's a love letter to the very oh yeah.
0: You absolutely have to do that. They will they'll cherish it. It's a beautiful book, beautifully told. What when's I don't know if you can drop this. What are we looking at for the release date? I
1: I could be wrong uh, here. It's an MGM release. It's going to be a theatrical release, and it should be this fall. If I'm wrong, I'm sorry, but it should be this fall.
0: If that's then we are going to go all, all the, the entire crew and watch it if that's the case. Well, before. I'll tell you what, man, go I, probably we, should January. Stay, we should stay in touch. And if that is the case,
1: I'm sure you have your own way in. And, 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 and But but if I can facilitate that to happen, I will. So reach out to me and I'll reach out to, the, to all of the necessary people and we'll make sure that you guys uh, are, are there as guests of honor.
0: Chris, I'm actually, I'm no one, so I don't get invitations to things like that. So I, I will, let me send you the stack, man. Again, these are the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Oh, well then- Even then, though they had a very I, black I'm, and dirty starting job. Starting now,
1: I'm making it my life's mission to make sure that you guys are there. So um, just get, okay. me, get me the info and I'll make sure that that, that happens. And I'm saying this right now uh, because you know maybe, maybe George will see this
0: and he's gonna know he's gonna have to put his money where my mouth is. So I'm gonna make sure that you guys do this. Yes, sir. Um, so Chris- First off, man, it's, you know, I, my day didn't start off all that great. Uh, we've got some construction going on in the house and that's a whole piece of yep. its own, uh, dealing with contractors, sure. God bless them and what they do. Uh, but man, your passion is inspiring and invigorating. You know, we do like to end this podcast in a certain way. Uh, I said it to you before we started, there are certain breadcrumbs that have led to your success. If you can leave those behind for others, there's, there's no greater gift. So what would you say, based off all your experience, all your trials and tribulations, what are the three things that you've held dear to, disciplined to, you could call them the key tenets in your life that have led to a majority of your success? <sighs> Hard work, humility, things along those lines.
1: Um, okay, so the three... I yeah, know, it's no, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrific question. But the three things that have led... To my success, I would say the first. The first is my wife. It was choosing a partner. Um, I would be nowhere without her. I would be. We wouldn't be talking. That's for sure. So I would say my wife is number one. I think um, my faith. Um, I've never had the courage to believe in nothing. Uh, I. I. I don't have the answers, but I know that there is no way that the life that I am living is just a random confluence of events. There is, I don't know what it is, but there is a through line. And, and for some reason, um, I am the benefactor of that through line. Um, and I'd say the third, and this is something that, I don't know that it's a tenant that I have had my entire life, but it's one that I've built and that's come to me and that I've come to realize. And that is the release of expectation Um, and truly accepting life for what it is, but recognizing the magic and the beauty of what is. Despite the fact that a circumstance may, you know, feel a certain way, the ability to be able to take it at face value. And it's funny, COVID really solidified this for me. I went deep, 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 deep into Stoic philosophy. I read Marcus Aurelius. Yeah, like, 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 like. Like there was no tomorrow. I read all of Ryan Holiday's wonderful books. I I, I yes. dipped back into Epictetus. I started going into some of my own roots with some Greek philosophy, which is challenging to read, particularly for an uneducated schmuck like me. But I'll tell you, the notion of not only bearing what is, but loving it, and 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 releasing the all of the things that we have no control over. So I'd say that
0: those are probably three of the most unique answers I've, I've had of any of my guests. And I'm almost upset at you that you put wife as number one. <laughs> and now I think I've got to rearrange mine or my wife will listen to this and just be like you. So yeah, it's true. Do, doing a disservice to all us uh, married guys. Oh, man. Lastly, and for some people, they, they this doesn't matter to them. Um, and I can phrase it two ways when all is said and done for you, let's hope that's 60 years from now. Um, and you break records, but when you're on your deathbed, looking back on everything and your kids are around you and your grandkids, what do you want your legacy to be? Or what do you want your reputation to be known for?
1: Oh man. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the the best thing that I could ask for, the best thing that I could hope for, is that if I was in the room, I made people feel better about themselves and and feel better for it. That 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 if I was there, they were better for it, and 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 that all I left behind, hopefully, was. Um, a lasting kindness i really really do hope for that i know that i've fallen far from that mark but uh i'm gonna keep pushing keep pushing for that
0: that's the whole point right yeah you're never gonna get it right yeah. all the time yeah but you 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 learn you readjust and, and you go back so again chris i, I want to hit these so you've got uh the sticky uh which comes out on amazon amazon, amazon prime, prime 2024. Uh, it, it, Yep. Okay, it, it, uh, Miss uh, Davis, right now is out on Peacock. Peacock, yep. Peacock. It's the first sweet, five episodes, on
1: Peacock, right now. The first five are there. We'll, we'll be at the sixth one uh, this week on Thursday, and it'll, it's eight episodes for the first season. Yep.
0: And then the boys in the boat, which has again serendipity. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We'll drop the links to all those for all the viewers, and uh, again. For everyone joining, Uh, thanks for joining. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever platform you utilize. Uh, Again, this has been Mike Sorelli and Chris Diamontopoulos. There we go. You got it. You got it. Okay. All right. Difficult. But again, guys, Men's Journal, Everyday Warrior Podcast. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again next time.